Welcome back to Art Matters, the podcast for artists. Today's episode 17, and I sit down with artist Mark Zabrovich. Mark's most recent work has been a deep dive into costume and textile as new modes of self-portraiture, particularly tapping into the furry community's iconic ritual of creating an anthro-alter-ego for oneself called a fursona. He currently lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. Here's that conversation with Mark Zabrovich. Um, You do have a lot of work on the wall in front of us. We have the paintings and the drawings, and your comment was that uh, just about all of this is from the last six months. So we're looking at a pretty recent body of work, Mm -hmm. um, except for the drawings. And you said some of these drawings have been here for maybe a year or more. Like you you keep the drawings kicking around. So I'm curious to start with the drawings themselves Mm -hmm. and the multiple forms they take. For instance, we have what seem like very fast sort of studies. I think you mentioned you do them at work, but then you also pulled out the more, um, uh, this is probably the wrong word, but sophisticated Mm -hmm. and kind of, um, they function differently, still drawings. So before we get to the paintings, I'm wondering how you think about your drawings, why they stay around uh, hanging on your wall for this longer amount of time, sort of the emphasis that you put on them and what you take from them for the paintings. That's such a great question. I feel like it's something that I've never really like thought about too deeply. And I think that's because I have like these two ways of working about it where uh, I mean, like with, with those drawings that we were just looking at the sort of more finished ones, yeah. um, that's from me finally, after the entirety of my art career, like making pencil drawings, finally, like getting into and falling in love with like the full spectrum of graphite. Hmm. So it's like, it felt like such new territory and I had to make something like really juicy in it. Gotcha. And so I think that's why I love drawing so much and I sort of ebb and flow with it where sometimes I'll make a ton of them and sometimes I'll go a long time without making them. But I find like my most productive times of high production have this mix of, of what you were saying of having some of them be like really quick and stupid and unprecious. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's so great about drawing is that you can make it precious, but you can make it extremely unprecious. I think I have trouble doing that with painting. Oh, me too. But um, I have very little trouble doing that with a drawing that I'm not like thinking about as like, it's like, ah, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was like a kid artist was like, not everything has to be a masterpiece Mm -hmm. where it's like, sometimes a drawing can take 45 seconds and it, it, the anatomy is fucked and the proportions are dumb. And the composition is terrible, Yeah, but you still made something. And sometimes those drawings end up kicking around like longer than the finished pieces. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I see it as like so much of an exploratory practice. Like mm-hmm. I can get an idea out that might never come to fruition in a more, finished way like uh sometimes it can just be an idea that comes to your head that's just like (sighs) but like what uh one of the pieces on here we were just talking about is uh an almost completely direct copy of this like illuminated manuscript i was looking Mm. at at work and i feel like sitting down and making like a little drawing of that that can you know take like an hour and a half two hours of just downtime at my day job but it allows me to like 
hash out an idea that sort of already exists, but in a way that I, I can sort of make it my own without having to go through like this crazy intellectual process of sure. how to justify it. You know, it's just, it's, it's just a drawing. It can be unprecious. And what about the, uh, is there more often an A to B relationship where a drawing becomes a painting for you or um, do often the drawings just stay what they are uh, contented to be a drawing or do they change? I, I think it, it can sometimes change. I feel like this year in particular, just like the last year in general hmm. has been a very uh, transformative relationship that I have between like drawing and painting and these two practices that can be separate and can be together. Interesting. Uh, and I think a big part of that was uh, I just uh, released a book. Uh, I released a book in April of this year uh-huh. that were all um, these very, some of them are very quick and some of them are a little bit more involved. Uh, and they're all drawings that I made at work at my day job. Oh, okay. But they are all, uh, I maybe two or three of them have figures in them, uh, but like never full figures. It's always like very, very cropped uh, because the the concept of the book is about things that smell good to me or dog me. I guess we mm-hmm. haven't gotten into the dog mm-hmm. thing yet, but um, and that comes from a whole other thing that I'm sure we'll get into about like I had COVID and lost my sense of smell and I hmm. had to find a way to regain my sense of smell or, or you know a way to reclaim that part of my body. But one of the things that made it so fruitful for me is like a practice was that I got to not only break away from like this figure relationship that I have in my paintings that like is pretty consistent. Like I almost always have a figure in my work. So it was a way for me to get away with that. And also to just make a series of something Mm. that I didn't necessarily have to think about them being like great drawings Mm. because some of the drawings are good. Some of the drawings I'm very proud of and I think are great, but I almost like the ones that, happened in like five minutes and were just an idea that was like, that has to be on paper now. I guess that's in a book now. Sure. Like, it only became a book halfway through the process. And is there a, a narrative to the book? I mean, it, t- two questions, I guess. Uh, are there, is there text or is there a narrative without text that you follow through the images, like sequential? You know what? I'll just go get it. I'll yeah, just yeah. Go get it. I I'd have, be done. I'd love to see a bunch of them. There is the book. All right. Stuff Bruce likes to sniff. So this came out when? In April this year. In April. And tell me a little bit, as I look through it, tell me a little bit about the process of, um, you said you didn't know it was going to be a book when it started. So tell me about how the idea transformed itself into a book, and then that idea of a book transformed itself into a published thing that I'm holding right here. Yeah, so totally. I'm sure a lot of people, including myself, are curious to know about that journey. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a fun process looking back on it. Cause I, um, I started doing these drawings in maybe October of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, they started as just feeling the need to one, occupy my brain during downtime at my job. And two, to, uh, just let go and make something that doesn't have, uh, this figure in it, because I mean, I, I feel like e- even as 
you become more competent as an artist and you get really comfortable with your subject matter and you can draw a, a, the body really well and intuitively and from memory. It's still like a lot of mental work to of like course. draw a figure. Yeah. So it, it sort of started off as me just using the materials that are at my desk at my job, just taking a piece of printer paper and like Googling an image of like a can of bleach or like those old Bath and Body Works, uh, hand sanitizer things that you carry and squirt hand, hand sanitizer with little plastic microbeads on your hands mm -hmm. and just sitting and drawing that and just finding a way to make something again, like it, it, it sounds so reductive to call it like quick and stupid, but it's just a way to make something that's just your hand working and not having to think about, Oh, like, what does this mean in my practice? Like yeah. how, how does this become like part of my larger work? And it's funny and a bit ironic that sometimes just those silly thought experiments become something larger mm -hmm. that informs something bigger. It's like when, <laughs> when I was making these drawings, like the first, like, I don't know, eight or 10 of them were just, really really stupid like just so so uninvolved like you can just sort of barely tell what's going on and the more that i made them the more i realized that i was like starting to dig really deep into them to make them like really good drawings and so the 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 way that the book is laid out they're not in like chronological order of like how when i made them got it they are just sort of curated so it's funny looking back on them because some of the earliest drawings that I made are some of the quote-unquote worst. Mm. And some of the last drawings that I made are, like, the quote-unquote worst. So it's like I went through this phase in the middle where I didn't care, and then I cared a lot. And then towards the end, when I wanted to, like, get enough drawings to have it be an actual book, I got right. stupid again. And some right. of my favorites are on the ends. That's so which funny. Which is it's, it's so funny. Where it's... It, it's... it's I feel like it takes a, a long time and I'm still definitely like, you know, I, I'm, there's so much I still have to learn as an artist and there's so much that I still stress too much on, but I feel like it's, it, it's, it's such a learned skill and it's taken me so long to get to the point where you can let yourself go and just make something dumb. And then when you recognize that maybe this is something bigger then you can expound upon it and like follow through and have it become a, a thing. Hmm. And what is your feeling about the, the finished piece? You know, now that it's this book, now mm -hmm. that these drawings have come together to create this thing, do you feel, um, let's say one question is, would you do it again? Do you have an ambition to make a sequel? Another thing is, do you, do you think that, yeah, let's stick with that first question. Yes, is this yes. something that you would want to repeat? Was the entire process of it something that you benefited from, not just in the way that you accomplished it once, but as a working process, something you'd like to return to? I mean, I feel like the super, super short, like, non-elaborative answer to that is mm. sure. 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 Yeah. Uh, and I think to elaborate, um, I think a lot... I, th I think where, where to begin with that is to um, bring up another motive of making a book, uh -huh. which is um, access, where one of my, one of the most rewarding things about the entire process of, of putting this book together and like, uh, I guess 
realizing through this process that this is going to become a book and like how exciting that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the biggest draws for me and one of the most valuable things I learned from this whole process is um, having something that people can get that doesn't cost a ton of money. Absolutely. That, yeah. ha- that gives them access to uh, not only like, a part of your work, but like, there's, there's a lot of content there. You know, there's, there's, it's a book, it's substantial. There's like 30 something drawings in it. Yeah. So it's like, it's something that I can put together. It's like, it's a theme that I was able to make a, a ton of variations on and let my imagination sort of go wild. Mm. And then I can compile that into something that people can then access for like $25. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, it's such it, it, it's such a great way to uh, put an idea out there. And I had never like made a book before this. Mm-hmm. I had never even thought to make a book before this, but now that I have, I, I want to find so many more ways to like so many more mediums to, to put work out there and have it be accessible yeah. I think that's the biggest thing I learned from this where it's like, I don't think I would make like a sequel to this book, mm-hmm. but I would take what I learned from putting something like this together and having it be disseminated out into the world. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I will take that into tons of other projects into the future. I feel like I learned so much making it. I love that. I think that there's a lot of, I've been finding similar um, paths that take me to, Uh, new ideas of democratizing art in what little ways I can, you know, and it's, it, it all takes, it starts as an idea and then you have to try it out. It's always (laughs) this new kind of usually pretty uncomfortable, although this doesn't, hearing you talk about the process of it, um, it's nice when it can come kind of easy or it looks that way, sounds that way. Um, but at the end of the day, it's such a, um, such like a mitzvah to do is to, you know, we've been doing this for a long time now. And, you know, in some senses, we just want what we want our big paintings to sell and we want our prices to keep on going up incrementally. And, uh, but it's nice to take, take a, take a moment, reflect and see if there's a way you can, um, yeah, democratize it, spread it out just a little bit for, for the rest. Totally. And it's, it's, it's so reassuring as an artist to sort of go through that process. Cause you like, you you say Mm -hmm. it it seems like it came together pretty easily and in the grand scheme of things it did. That's interesting. Uh, uh, and I actually have a a lot of that to thank for my partner who works full time in like layout and, and book design. I was going to say, yeah, great looking book for a first book for a first book. Like that's not nothing. That is, that is, that is not me alone working on it. Um, it. But uh, yeah, no, it it was such a rewarding process, but having it come together easy, I will say not that it's the exception to the rule, but it's, um, I guess this, I guess it's a truth that not every little idea that you have is going to blossom into something bigger. Sometimes just something that you have, sometimes you do it 
and it's just something that you did and it doesn't have to turn into this greater thing. Like there are a couple, these two little paintings that are right behind you. Those uh, little landscapes uh-huh. are just, uh, I have a friend Dylan who is an incredible landscape painter and that's like what he does with his practice. But uh, a couple of years ago, like during the height of the pandemic, we just went to Prospect Park in our bikes and we just painted plein air. And nice. it was a super rewarding thing. I love those two little paintings. I'm so happy with them. But it's never really done anything to, like, my practice. Of course. But I'm so glad that I made them. And yes. There's, there, again, it's like I said before, I feel like I'm still very much in the process of this. But I feel like I've gotten so much better at just... Because you're right. You You want your work to sell, you want your prices to go up and it's like a huge source of anxiety. Sometimes it can be, but it's very reassuring to like go and just make a painting or just make a drawing and realize that like part of the, the, the democratization of it and wanting to democratize it more is realizing that all of that anxiety is not why I'm here. Like I am not here to sell big paintings. Right on. I am yep. here because I love making stuff. Right. You right. know. I think there's um, something that came up recently in my studio practice, which I've been trying to ease off my advice giving on this podcast because I think I'm mm-hmm. it's like episode thirteen. I think I'm like everyone's heard my advice, <laughs> but this just happened recently where I became aware that I was shooting down an idea. In the morning at at my apartment Mm. as a way of meaning the idea was I was going to go to the studio, have this idea the night before and the morning came and I was like, you know what? This is kind of stupid, isn't it? This is kind of stupid. This doesn't really fit with (laughs) what happened before. You're probably not going to take this too far. And very luckily, finally, I became present to what I was doing, what that voice was saying and how much that voice is missing the point of what I actually plan on doing, what I intend on doing, which is not to create some uh, perfectly conceptual, coherent uh, 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 monograph of my Mm -hmm. work in real time. It's to paint. And it's to get in there and explore these ideas. And I, I bring that up because looking at these landscapes and a few of the other pieces that you've shown me at the beginning, which were a little disparate to your sort of what I consider to be your work. Um, I think that there's such a, a freedom in that and it takes training. This is what we were talking about. uh, Me and another artist last night is no matter how much school you've gone to, how much you've dedicated to that, like educational process, the education to and becoming a professional artist, there's a lot of pushback on how to brand, how to keep things cohesive, not even given that a hard time, but we've got to make sure we leave room for the joy of painting. Yeah. Some days we don't want to go and paint the guy that we're, we're supposed to paint. Sometimes we want to do plain air. Sometimes... Anyway, that's just the over-elaboration on, God, paint what you want to paint. No, I, Life is short. I love that. And right? like, paint what you want to paint because life is short. And also, I mean, this is this is how I have to get my, my fanboying. And uh, mm. it, it reminds me so much of uh, the sort of 
the philosophy of Bruce Nauman, who mm. my little doggy guy is named after. Oh, okay. All right, cool. I love me some Bruce Nauman. I am obsessed with him. He's one of my favorite artists ever. I used to work at PS1, and mm. I did tours for his huge solo show uh-huh. that they had back then, and I just, like, fell head over heels in love with his work and his practice. And what you were just saying reminds me of his some of his earliest work where he was, like, going to grad school... And he had this, like, realization, ironically, like, having this realization made him quit painting forever. But I mm. think it's, like, the opposite for us, where you're saying it's, like, the, the joy of painting is what br- is actually what brings you in every day. Yeah. Where uh, in Bruce Nauman's work, he sort of had this realization working that anything that I'm doing in the studio is art practice. Mm. Anything that I'm doing in the studio is art. And he took that in the conceptual direction where he, you know, set up a camera and, you know, filmed himself doing repetitive movements over and over again. And like, that's art because I'm in the studio and I'm creating, Mm. I'm doing something. It's like the, that's the essential of art. It's the most basic thing. You're in the studio and you're making something. Mm. And the way that you're talking about like, oh, like I'm waking, I woke up in the morning and my idea, it sounds kind of stupid. I don't really want to do it, but when I get to the studio and I have studio time, that's the, that's the liberty that I'm giving myself to do the stupid thing. And, and sometimes that can feel like you're wasting time, but that is some of the most valuable time you can get in your studio. Just like going for it. I have no vision, whatever. Just letting this thing move. I'm letting my hand move. Well, it's interesting. There's a couple of questions there, but I think what I want to loop back to is when you were talking about how the drawing uh, left you, I think you were talking about that copy that you did, mm. The um, that you didn't feel the sort of effortful uh, uh, effect of conceptualizing a piece prior to it or maybe during the making of it. And so I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about that. Is that something that um, that inevitably uh, comes to you in all of your paintings uh, of your sort of primary series? Or is it just a feeling that you get right before you realize it's got to be drawing for a while? I've got to, you know, <laughs> reset for a bit. Like, does that tell you things are getting slow or stale? Or is that something that is again, inevitably part of the process of making a cohesive group of work for you? I think it's a little bit of both really. I, and I think, um, maybe it's a part of that is another thing that I'm trying to unlearn through Mm -hmm. that process of drawing is that thought of, I mean, I, I think it's something that, um, art history and like being in the art world and that kind of thing doesn't do us any service to the thought of like, you are an artist and your work and your life is a line. It's a linear trajectory. And no matter how much you change, you will have the history will look back on you as this line, as an artist who went from point A to point B. Right. And I think that's, it's a lot of weight to put on your shoulders as like a person who's just making stuff. So I feel like it, that's something that I'm trying to unlearn, like having the weight feel like feeling the weight of having to be like, not, not only like this cohesive artist who is, who has a singular vision, but also like 
a brand in the social media age yeah. where I think that's sort of a force that I wish didn't govern us so much, but I mean, ha- having consistent work not only helps with like, you know, the weight on your shoulders about being like a consistent artist, but it also helps you get attention on the internet. Absolutely. Which is a pain, but we, we do need eyes on our work to survive as artists. We do. No, it's absolutely, absolutely correct. Um, what about, uh, the fact that, uh, so we talked about how drawings, uh, sort of, uh, one of a couple of functions that they have, um, how they do become paintings, but why do you keep some around for, uh, longer periods of time? And I suppose this is, could be a bigger topic, but we also have in your studio a work that is quite a bit older and you remarked has been here for a very long time. So besides just drawings, what is your connection to having older work remain visible existing in your workspace? Mm-hmm. That's, it's a, that's a great question. And I feel like it's, it's a significant question mm-hmm. because I, I feel like, uh, again, it's like what I was saying before about like being an artist can sometimes feel you, f- you can sometimes feel pressure to have it be like this line that you're always going forward or that like you're always improving as an artist and your work yeah. is always getting better and deeper. Uh, but I think one of the functions of having these, these things stick around is that um, sometimes ideas survive, but they don't, become what they're supposed to be for a long time. Hmm. And, and, and I was just thinking about this because I was going through some of the work that I made in like my BFA program, like Hmm. eight years ago. And I don't really have any of that work around me now. Like the, the, the oldest work that I think is in here is this, that teeny tiny little painting that's buried, buried behind a bunch of my house plants, which is from like maybe five or six years ago. Of the the, uh, the teal background, yeah, the teal okay. background of this yeah. of this anthropomorphic dog like laying in a field of grass. Mm. Um, that's the oldest piece I have, and I think it's beneficial for me to look back on, e- even if the work is not like terribly old, even if it's just from an idea from like a year ago or from six years ago that either did go somewhere or didn't go somewhere. I feel like it's so beneficial for me to have this work around to see uh, that this actually not so linear. Sometimes things will meander and circle back. Uh, Sometimes things just get completely abandoned. And Mm -hmm. as it turns out, those are just as valuable as the things that blossomed into something else. Mm. Uh, and I've, that's so beneficial for me because I feel like if I didn't have that old work around, I would feel even more pressure to just like barrel forward and just keep making new things. Interesting. So it helps inspire a, a certain amount of doubt in just pure linear progression. It lets you kind of do cartwheels when you want to circle back when you want to. Yeah, I think that definitely. makes a lot of sense. Definitely. Huh. What's your what's your feeling? And I know that we've just been talking about drawing. We'll get to painting in a second, but have you always felt a certain confidence with your drawing? And, and I say that both with the, 
looks like pencil work up here. We mentioned the graphite work uh, recently too, but then I'd also say the oh, first yeah. time I came in touch uh, or came uh, to find one of your paintings, I believe it was in person, maybe it was on Instagram, your drawing came through that too. You know, I'm not sure the materials that you're using, but you really are a, um, in my mind, very much a drawer. Mm. Um, at least I won't say that. I don't want to classify <laughs> you, but I read a lot of your older works as drawings, as paintings, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And some, was that always the thing? Was this, was drawing sort of principle from early on, or is it something you had to build a confidence with? That's a great, that's also a great question. Cause when, when I look back at, um, I guess sort of the material languages that I've gone through yeah. over and over again, I, started out like and when i say started out i mean like when i was eight years old it's funny we talk about you know the joy of painting when i was eight my dad got me a bob ross vhs and a bunch of oil paints mm -hmm. so it's <laughs> i it's funny like looking back on that i consider that the beginning of my time at like as an artist because mm -hmm. it, it was the first time somebody gave me like a bunch of materials and a way to work and i had to figure that out and I think that just became something endlessly intriguing to me. Mm. So it's funny, like I technically started out painting, mm -hmm. but um, I think I always found more freedom in drawing uh, because I mean, yeah, it's like look, looking back on it, like even when I was a kid, it's like the joy of painting thing. It's like the Bob Ross thing. Or um, my dad took me to, to painting classes when I was like 11 or 12 years old because mm. he's like a, he's an artist too. He likes to, you know, paint. Oh, your dad is. Okay. Yeah, he, he, he's, he is mostly like a Sunday painter. He paints like religious things because he's a deacon in the Catholic Church. We can get into that later. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but it's funny because like I, I look at my relationship with painting like growing up versus my relationship with drawing where my relationship with painting sort of started vaguely academic because mm -hmm. like you know as as cozy as bob ross is he's still teaching you how to paint mm -hmm. you know and i would get in the car and take my oil paints and go to this painting class as a kid but i also have these like notebooks from fifth or sixth grade that are just full of little doodles mm -hmm. and they're also full of just circles and x's of red pen ink where all of my teachers are saying please do not draw in the margins <laughs> don't do that sure. so it's like from from almost like a psychological perspective like the uh drawing is like it's 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 a more free practice and it's like it's it's a it's it's an activity that i do when my mind wanders and when your mind wanders sometimes the shit that comes out of it is the shit that you're really thinking about. Mm. But yeah. yeah and, it, and it's funny how that ends up in my painting language too. Mm -hmm. Cause like, I mean, like I'm definitely a painter, but drawing is a huge part of it. And I yeah. think the material that you're looking at in some of this older work that maybe blends into the background more in the new stuff mm -hmm. are wax pastels. Ah, I, I okay. love them so yeah. much. Uh, I, I have the, the, the watercolor ones that are soluble and you can mix them as pigment. And I have the non-soluble ones that just end up as like these pen, these almost crayon marks. They're like yeah, archival yeah. crayons basically. Uh, and they 
access that it, they access sort of both parts of my brain where like the, the painting language and the drawing language can sort of be blended into one. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's funny how that evolves with my, the, my surface language too. Mm-hmm. Cause, uh, the wax pastels are so great. Um, especially on raw canvas. Cause like I'll, I'll, I won't gesso my canvases much except for like a coat or two of clear gesso just to make them hold. Yeah. But I love the tooth of a canvas. I love something that fights against me hmm. because I think it, 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 again, it accesses that part of my brain that can just sort of be more free and let go hmm. instead of, uh, having it, be like professional almost like academic. It's funny. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to hear that uh, because understanding that this is raw canvas or sealed canvas. And then behind us, we're looking at a combination of uh, burlap and jute. So maybe the most uh, obstacle ridden uh, I've never painted on either one, but that is some heavy duty stuff to paint against compared to, Drawing on pieces of paper, mm-hmm. literally the mo- most effortless way of image making, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm trying to figure out the parallel there between, um, for instance, a couple of years ago, I found that painting on these beautiful sheets, I don't think they sell them anymore. There was like a an art store closed and Blick on, uh, what was it? Blick on Bond Street? In Manhattan. Oh, yeah. There's one on Canal now. Yeah. Right. Um, But the one, I believe, on Bond had the last remaining stack of these 33 by 50 inch sheets of paper that Mm. were, you know, they weren't printmaker grade, but they also weren't printmaker paper prices. They were like cheap. Anyway, the point is I bought a few of them and just started painting on them because it's like I wanted to access the, the lack of preciousness. And what I found is... First of all, it was so lovely to paint and just <laughs> turn it over and paint again. Uh, the scale helped because that was the scale. It, it got you, got me out of the 24 by 30 or whatever mm, the yeah, classic yeah. is. Um, but what I learned from it is I love the smooth way a brush slid across canvas. So that, what I'm saying is began a period of years when, where I would make canvas, um, the, uh, the gessoing, the priming, all of it like silk. And I've, I've backed off that since, but that to me is more of like a, a direct one to two uh, comparison mm. versus your love of drawing. And then your also love of exploring these, you know, difficult surfaces. Yeah. I just wonder if you could put into words why you, why you give yourself this trouble. <laughs> what, what about it? It is uh, so thrilling for you that oh. that you leave the gentleness of a gessoed cotton canvas behind. Oh. I oh, I don't even know if that's gentle. Mm. I guess like okay. that's that's what I. It's almost like uh, one of the other best pieces of advice that I cannot remember where it came from. Where it's somebody just like said it offhand once and it just stuck in my brain forever. Uh-huh. It was like being an artist is just giving yourself problems to solve. Yeah. And I I also love that so much and I feel like it 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 that like f- is such a fundamental in my practice. 
like even uh with like the even with like the pencil drawing where it's like it's so it, it it can be so smooth and effortless and you can just make a mark and just have it live there i think that's why i'm falling in love with like the full spectrum you know 10b to 10h graphite yeah for is sure. because now everything's complicated mm. now everything is super super complicated where it's like everything has a different feel everything has a different level of dark that it can get to and how much pressure it can put into the into the paper as opposed to just like working with an hb pencil where it's just like now now like that mode of working is like still great but I love that I have now given myself a problem and that's why I love painting on burlap so much hmm. is because giving myself that problem actually sort of lets me let go where it's like the, these uh, sort of more involved or, or finished pencil drawings that yeah. I was showing you before, which I made very recently. Um, one of the things I love about them so much is that I'm using the full spectrum of graphite, but I've also given myself a zero on the scale by using um, like an etching needle. I was wondering, to, there, there is a quality of them yeah. that looks a little like a lithographic. Yeah. So I was curious. So an etching needle. Yeah. Huh. So uh, I, I just score the paper and dig into the paper wow. and just like make essentially an entire other drawing under what's going to be the drawing before I even start using these pencils. Yeah. And that allowed me like in the process of making this little series that I definitely want to make more of them. It allowed me to just like make an indentation and not have to worry about having it be part of this finished piece. It's just like some, it, it'll be there incidentally. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I love the burlap so much too, because you just kind of have to let go and let things be but yeah. you can you can dig into it and have some precision. There are some really precise moments, I feel like, on these little hmm. tiny burlap pieces that I'm doing. But that comes um, not at the expense of, but it, it comes with having the piece as a whole uh, not be under my complete control. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it's like you're you're giving yourself moments. Because, you know, you, you do have complete control over what you're doing. It, you know, you can erase something if you need to on a, on a pencil drawing. And, and if you're painting with oils, which these little guys actually are, I just got back into those oil, are oil painting again. Really? Yeah, those are all oil paintings. And that's new for, I mean, maybe recent for yeah, you. Yeah, very recent. Okay. I, I just came back to that in the last, like, six to ten months or so. Is this the... Uh... Is this what happens after you go on a Liquitex residency? Is you're like, and it's back to oils. Sort of. <laughs> I would love to hear of. what you could share about that. I just. Oh, sure. Uh, we talk a lot on this podcast about residencies mm -hmm. and what those experiences sort of generally can offer artists. So if there's anything you want to share either about that residency or why you go on them, what you gain from them. Oh, I think totally. all of that is, is totally, would be great, totally. to, great to hear. I, I I mean, I could not be a bigger advocate for them. I feel like residencies and the opportunity that they provide you to, again, give yourself a problem to solve. Mm. You, it's the most basic problem that you can give yourself. I'm in a new place. Yeah, yeah. What am I going to... I'm in a new place for a limited amount of time. What am I going to do? Yeah, probably with, depending on what your studio setup is, not all of your favorite toys. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You kind of, you, you can't take everything bag. with you. Right. 
And I think that I, again, like I could be, I'm such a huge advocate for residencies and I've done a bunch of them. My first mm-hmm. one was the Vermont studio center, which mm-hmm. is wonderful. And they're going through some tough times right now. They just got flooded, but oh, they're really? great. Yeah. Well, was that, uh, that's not the three. No, no, no. That's a one month residency. Yeah. How it's long? it's okay. a month. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, it's up in Johnson, Vermont. That's right. And I did that in 2017. So like pretty, it feels like pretty early on now, mm-hmm. but it was so transformative and so many ways, just again, going out to a space that is not your own, that you're not used to. You're surrounded by a bunch of people that you have never met before a grocery store that you don't know the name of that you've never been to before. Yeah. Uh, all of those things get you out of the, to me, sort of going back to what you were saying before, uh, the residency situation and, and being in that new place and, sometimes having new materials or materials you've never used before. Mm. It is a way to jump that hurdle you were talking about before of waking up in the morning and thinking that your idea last night was stupid Mm. where it's like, okay, yeah, sure. It's stupid. How much time do I really have here though? I just got to get working. Yeah. And it, it absolutely, it's a ticking clock that also, yeah, it's it's an interesting because I think we all create ticking clocks for ourselves, real or imagined, and then we either work better or, or worse with them. But yeah, residencies, there's an interesting type of time that yeah. exists on them. Yeah, you know? definitely. I mean, that, that makes me think of my time at, at the Liquitex residency in Jersey, where they were incredible. And since they're Liquitex, they're a paint manufacturer, mm. they gave me a not... Not literally, but functionally unlimited material. Really? They they gave me so much stuff. Oh my god, and that's a lot so of, cool. A lot of stuff that they had discontinued, a lot of stuff that was sort of going to be discontinued or, or, or new things that they were hoping people would try out. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, that residency was sort of abnormal because like you, you do, you, you give ticking clocks to yourself. You give, you, you have sort of arbitrary limitations that are put upon you in this residency. And not only did I have unlimited materials, but the space that they gave me was incredible. Mm. So like those limitations were stripped away. Mm. And now my limitations were, what can I do with this stuff in the time that I have allotted? Sure. Which was in some ways really incredible. And in some ways, really stressful yeah. because you, you want to, you want it to be as fruitful as possible, but cause you then, have no excuse, right? <laughs> yeah. Cause you have no excuse, but then it's sort of, you, you have to, I'm glad that the Liquitex residency wasn't the first residency that I did. It was oh, the sixth sure. one that yeah. I did Yeah, because I think if I, if this was the first one that I had done, it might have been the opposite situation where I would have woken up every morning and been like, no, that idea was stupid. I really need to make everything perfect. Yeah. Where it, 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 it was, it became that at some points, but I, I had some of the experience to know by the end of it, what you're going to make is what you're going to make. Just let yourself go for a while. And yeah. that's when I, that's when it was most productive. Hmm. It's very interesting. And yeah, all residencies, it's, uh, you said you had six. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, the, let me think the Vermont studio center. I did a residency with a gallery that is wonderful, but is no more called deli grocery in Queens hmm. in 2018. 
Then I did Bunker Projects, which was a residency in Pittsburgh, which everybody should apply to and is yeah. incredible. And Pittsburgh might be my favorite place in America outside of New York City. Really? Such an amazing place. Everybody's cool. Food's amazing. Not expensive. Um, bunker residency, huh? Bunker Projects. Bunker yeah, Projects. Bunker Understood. Projects. And then almost immediately after that, I did um, a gallery in Vancouver called James Black. And mm-hmm. I think they're still around. They're in a, they were in a very old old building right in the heart of Vancouver. And I did ceramics there, which is great. So again, mm-hmm. like I had all of my tools, all of my toys stripped away from me. And I was just thrown in an environment where it's like, all right, well, I might as well make like cups for a month. And I ended <laughs> up making some some plates and some little doggy figurines. But uh, that, that ended up being productive because I found myself at an art residency not wanting to make my art at all. Yeah. Which is... Not what I was expecting, but sometimes you just have to go with what you don't expect. I think that that's uh, that's an experience that I've had more than once on yeah. a residency where I think it all lines up, whether I'm planning it or not, where I'll be on one because I I don't know what the next step is. So that first week is just sort of sitting there watching the other artists work, Yep, you know. <laughs> For better or for worse, building up a lot of self hatred that I, I don't yeah, feel eat, like painting. Eating a beer, yeah, drinking a chicken wing. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Let me. Uh, speaking of tools, we're gonna switch paths a little yeah, bit. Totally. Just talk a little bit about. Um, uh, we've talked about, uh, about drawing. We've talked about uh, acrylic. We were just getting started on oil painting, but airbrushing is something that's been a part of your work before uh, for a long period of time. Yeah. Or is it, and is it something that you you probably taught yourself how to do it? And is it you think it's foundational to your practice, or is it something that just shows up once in a while? I think you know it's like I, t- I was talking about the Vermont Studio Center before. I think that residency. I had gotten my airbrush compressor like two months before I went on that residency. Uh-huh. And I wasn't, again, like I wasn't, when I got into that residency, it was before I had gotten the airbrush and I wasn't expecting that residency to be like um, this massive material study. But mm. I went there and I had my airbrush compressor and it ended up just being this, I made like, I made a bunch, I made like 30, 40 paintings. Hmm. Some, most of them like really, really small on paper. Got it. But it ended up just being this such an incredibly fruitful time of just, I had this thing Mm. that I want to get good at. And I just spent an entire month getting good at it. And it became something huge in my practice for a very long time. Mm. Uh, And it became really integral to the way I was working because the, the, the work I was making at the time and sort of the, this painting is, is an example of me, I think finding a way to have the airbrush be um, like a tool in my arsenal rather than the only tool that I had. But Does this that is mean like, it's integrated into this work as well. Yeah, the airbrush. There, there's there's airbrush in this work. But, really, um, it's sort of minimal and only sort of as an accent and not as like the whole process. I think that's why I'm curious. I I'm probably stating my own bias, but often I think artists that use airbrush, it's it really calls attention to itself. Even mm-hmm. when I use airbrush, I yeah, kind yeah. of think it is, it's a very strong touch. Yeah. And I haven't been, maybe there's some work that I've seen of yours that um, shouts it a little bit, but for the most part, I I haven't noticed airbrush as a common uh, element. So how do you integrate it without it being so, so loud? You know, it's, it's funny how we're, we, 
we've been, I feel like the through line for this entire conversation has been drawing. And I feel like that's the key to the airbrush for me as oh, well, okay. because like I, I taught myself how to use it and this was like, yeah, this was 2017. So this was right at the beginning of that late 2010s wave of like uh, post analog painting where people were trying to sort of recreate digital gradients yeah. and then, you know, shiny, very crisp edges and, and surfaces and kind of like that. So I think that's what you're talking about when mm. you say that the airbrush kind of shouts itself, like it has a look. It does. But the way that I taught myself how to use it, I found so much more joy in using it as line. Mm. I found so much more joy in, in having it be, again, sort of something that's not totally in your control because there's so much precision with an airbrush but the airbrushes that I was using at the time were pretty old, yeah, kind of outdated, yeah, did not always listen to me. Mm-hmm. But through the process of like not being afo- not being able to afford to solve that problem with a better airbrush, uh-huh. I just sort of learned how to live with the imperfection. And through living with the imperfection and having it just spurt paint at you sometimes and you know, not listening to you getting clogged half of the time and spending half of your studio day on clogging fucking airbrush. (laughs) Um, What I learned from that was how much I loved drawing with it Mm. and how much it can just be a tool to make a mark on a thing. And it can be like its own thing. It doesn't have to be an accent to something interesting or, or it doesn't have to be an accessory to making more concrete work Hmm. where it's like, I see a lot of people using airbrush with like a taped line to get Mm -hmm. a very precise edge. I almost never did that when I was using airbrush primarily Hmm. because I like, I liked the softness of it. And I liked the fact that you could almost get crisp with like making a really, really thin line with the airbrush, but you can't ever actually do it. Hmm. So there's, I, yeah. One of the through lines, I guess in this conversation is me, finding ways to complicate things for myself in the process, but through having things be complicated in the process, it, it helps me let go of like the finished product hmm. or like having the level of finish, like let sort of like letting go of the, I guess the perfectionism of like the perfectly smooth, yeah, you know, canvas that's been gessoed 20 times and sanded and you have that silkiness. Like mm-hmm. I think a lot of my, process my unconscious process is finding a way to get away from that Hmm. to to make the thing that i'm doing sort of process wise kind of difficult so i just get into the process and i'm just letting go for sure and going back to that uh quote you brought up about um solving problems Mm -hmm. you know that's such a so many of the things we've talked about could be looked at as problems like you're making your life harder but if you're someone who loves solving problems then i think it all fits pretty well with that with that philosophy yeah and and i love um one of the things i love about specifically the surfaces in in the way that i work is i love a very sort of tacit blunt acknowledgement that this thing that I'm painting on is fabric. Mm. I just, I, I love that. I, mm. I, f- I feel like I've sort of fallen in love with that, especially cause another part of my practice that I don't know if we'll really have time to talk about, mm. uh, is 
uh, I work like a lot with fabric just between the jute and the canvas. And mm. I also, uh, you can see it on my Instagram. I'll send you a picture of it later. Mm. I am in the process of making a dog costume. Oh, so yeah. I like, I work, I have like a sewing machine. I have a bunch of faux fur. I love that idea of like everything that I'm doing here mm. is like, weaved yeah yeah yeah. You you're know? not you're not ignoring the the material you, no you want that material to be loud or i mean loud's probably an incorrect word but you're um holding up the material yeah it's, it's of it's, importance it's like pa- painting is an illusion no matter what you do mm-hmm. like e- e- even if you have no illusionistic space you don't have any three dimensions in it paintings it's it's an illusion you're looking at this thing in three dimensions that is supposed to be two dimensions. Yeah. And I love the acknowledgement of the surface, like so directly because it's just another way to access the illusion. Yeah. No, I get that. I get that. And I think that, I mean, especially with these new ones uh, behind me here, uh, allowing the negative space to just be the jute or the burlap, you know, you really are, there's no, Nothing's being hidden there. You're really holding the subject matter and the the material as equal of equal importance, mm-hmm. you might say. And that's another fun way that, uh, as an artist, you sort of give yourself problems to solve. Is that 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 little series of of paintings behind you, just single figure, no background, just straight like figure on ground. Uh, sometimes a great way to find yourself in a series of work is to give yourself a bunch of arbitrary limitations. It's mm-hmm. like, no, no backgrounds in these. Mm-hmm. You don't get anything just figure. Yeah. Like, and you know, no color palette beyond the, the color of this, you know, character's fur and the, the dark of his coveralls. Like mm-hmm. that's it. Nothing else. Yeah. I'm like, you have to stick to that rule for sure. Yeah. Very, um, yeah. Rigid, but also it's, it's, yeah, I think that equal importance to both and, and seeing where. Is it possible that these could turn into larger works? Or is, I had been meaning to ask you about scale before and mm. I never got around to it. Um, do you feel like uh, maybe you're more confident at certain sizes or that your, your work is more like... Functions better at a smaller or larger scale, or, or is this something that changes year after year, and, and you try not to to, to control? I, it's a total ebb and flow for me. Okay, and Got it. it it goes from extreme to extreme, hmm. uh, and sometimes I'm doing both at once. Like I'm thinking back to my time at Bunker Projects in Pittsburgh in 2019, where I made some of the biggest paintings I had ever made at the time. They're, you know, like five by seven feet, like big, big, huge paintings. But one of the things that I, that I spent the most time doing at that residency was I had just gotten my singer heavy duty sewing machine. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I have any of them out here with us, but I made maybe 30 or 40 little embroidered patches on canvas. Okay. Uh, and some of the, the largest one I think is like 10 by 12, but most of them are like really, really tiny. Like they're, they're like literally patches you could put on a jacket and they're all just drawn with a sewing machine. Again, it's like, I, I'm giving myself another like sort of unconventional material to use as a line. Absolutely. I feel like that, that 
just keeps coming up in my work over and over again. Yeah. Almost the same with the burlap. The burlap is just a bunch of interlock. It's just a tiny grid yeah. that I'm painting on. For it's sure. It's just a bunch of interlocking lines. For sure. So I've, that's so interesting. Yeah, it is the it's funny how you bring that up. That's mm-hmm. I never really thought about that in that context before. <laughs> Tell me a little bit. I, I've just got a few questions left for you, but yeah. I think what's been particularly valuable in previous conversations is when artists can share a little bit of their experience exiting school, mm-hmm. whether that's your master's or your BFA, um, and the time that immediately follows and the transitions that take place. Now I know you've been in New York this whole time versus maybe some people that have gone to a university and come here after the fact, Mm. come to New York city. I mean, do you, is there anything you can share from your, your history, your biography that could, and, and it doesn't have to be in the form of advice, but maybe you could just give, us a little bit of a walkthrough of what happened after school and maybe the first couple of shows or, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a studio, like moving into a studio, just a few anecdotes about that period of time. Cause I really think that that's a difficult area for so many people because you're just, you know, you just out of school. It's the next thing we all get bartending jobs or restaurant jobs. We all, or, or museum yep. jobs, whatever. Like, yep. And then it's kind of like, oh, okay, now what? Do I make yeah. friends? Do I cold call galleries? You know, which you don't do. Uh, but I, I'm yeah, always curious to know what the what your course was. What were some of the uh, early decisions that maybe ended up with you being where you are today? It's a great question. And, like, it, it, everybody's journey is different. Mm-hmm. But I feel like almost everybody that I know... Because, full disclosure, I don't have a master's degree. Mm-hmm. I, I just have a BFA. I went to um, SUNY Purchase, right. which is a great, which I consider a great school. I think it's got a good reputation mm-hmm. as a great arts school. And I feel like I got a great education. But almost everybody that I know, kind of no matter what school they went to, no matter how much they paid for it, no matter how you know fantastic their teachers were, or, I feel like at the end of four years of art school, everybody hates their work. Mm. Or everybody's just kind of done with art for a while. I see. And if I had to give, if I have to give one piece of advice to anybody who just got a bachelor's degree from art school is don't feel bad if you don't feel like painting for like a year. That's okay. I think it's totally fine. Like, and I, I think if you feel like painting, if you feel like continuing that work afterwards, that's also like, that's great too. Like, Mm. please continue painting. And I did continue painting. Mm. Uh, I, I felt I was actually really happy with like the very last bits of work that I made in college. Um, and even despite that, I had to take a break, Mm. you know, I, I just had to like, even just a summer, give yourself a summer, you know? Um, but like, yeah, immediately after graduating from school, I was still, like making work in my bedroom for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes that's just how it has to be too. That's how it had to be for me. Cause um, I didn't like, I I lived with my parents on Long Island for a long time after I graduated from school, just Mm -hmm. because I, I couldn't 
find my way into the art world. I didn't know how to do that immediately. Mm. Like I didn't, there were, there weren't podcasts like this. I could listen to, to see what other artists were listening to. Well, Absolutely. Or, That's the thing. There's no, I don't know if my podcast is that, but there's so little infrastructure there for artists in that position. Yeah. Where, yep. You know, the only advice is, well, you know, you and your classmates need to start your own gallery, you know, God. like this sort of, it, <sighs> not, not er- erroneous advice, but also, kind of lucky it's a lucky situation you find yourself with a a a core of productive well-meaning people that are just like yeah let's go take on the world and even you know that'll last a year before everyone wants to kill each other yeah before everyone wants to kill each other or everybody has to you know or or that fizzled out because you need to make a living absolutely and it's really hard to stay motivated when you're working food service and somebody calls you a slur because they didn't get, you didn't get decaf for them. Yeah. It's hard to want to keep that whole art spirit alive. Absolutely. But I mean, those are the, uh, the, uh, problems as we were talking about that, unfortunately aren't as fun to solve, right? Like painting the studio. That's where it's all this, it's such a charged type of disagreement that you have with a painting. And then the other stuff can be so demoralizing. The jobs that are cruel and unusual or leave you just wasted at the end of the day. Like that's that. And that also very common at that age yeah. before we have a little bit, it's almost like a bit of desperation that we have to get over at the beginning. Definitely. Where I'm not saying things just simplify uh, later in life, but they do. I think you have a little bit more, maybe, um, you find a little more kindness to yourself and hopefully yeah. find jobs that are, maybe they don't give you quite the f- financial security, but at least you're not doing damage. I don't know. This is more postulating my own personal experience. <laughs> I but, mean, I, 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 I can't say that I can't relate. Cause mm. I mean, I, I did a bunch of really terrible jobs like outside of the first, maybe two or three years of me graduating from college. Yeah. You know, but Pretty much everything that you said, it's like you work the food service, you know, you work the terrible manual labor job. Like yep. I did, I did both of those. I, I, did you ever work for an artist, like an assistantship? You ever try that out? Um, I worked freelance for some artists mm-hmm. and that was a very difficult experience because when you work freelance for somebody, you not only are not getting regular hours, you are completely at the whim of them. And this artist that I was working for, I will not name them. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, they had a project that they had, you know, uh, hired me to do on X amount of days. And I had other work that I wanted to be doing at the time, but I was like, Oh yeah, I'll I'll make decent money off of this. Um, and then they had, they had contracted. I mean, they had asked me to work five days and, four out of five of those days they canceled on me a half hour before I was supposed to be there. That's terrible. And I was living on Long Island and they were in Long Island city. So, so four out of five already, of those days uh, I was at Jamaica station already having paid my Long Island railroad ticket. And they get a text being like, Oh, sorry, come in tomorrow. Um, so if I had to give another piece of advice, if something like that happens to you, um, demand partial payment for those lost hours because that's what I did. And I never worked for that guy again, but I made a couple hundred bucks off of not having to work there because you go. that was not my fault. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, uh, that's part of it too, is learning how to, uh, I think something it's funny that art teaches us. And I think also the service industry teaches us is how to 
not put ourselves first and yeah. to just be so, you know, like wanting to please, mm. which, you know, it's what made me a good bartender, but it's also what led me into so much trouble later in life where it's, it, it, it's, it's, these are bad things to bad habits. It makes you a good bartender, but being a good bartender is often means not advocating for yourself. Exactly. Which, yeah. um, yeah, it's a difficult habit to like get yourself into. Yeah. And like, <laughs> especially for artists. I mean, we also, I think, um, have trouble advocating for ourselves yeah, totally. in, in a way that sure it's everything that everyone already knows about art making. It seems counterintuitive, but I think sometimes we're like the, the worst fan clubs for ourselves. <laughs> like we are so diminutive and kind of, um, you know, polite and, uh, you know, gone are the days of the, the insane radical artist that does what they want to do and still kind of, I mean, in the sense that that still exists, I guess I'm wrapping myself in circles here. But all I mean is that um, a lot of these lessons from certain careers, I think can have unpleasant um, uh, consequences for artistry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just Literally. learned behaviors. Yeah. You know? It's learned behaviors. And it's so like, there's so many forces on artists now that are just completely beyond our control. I was thinking about this last night because just in the last week, uh, for the first time ever, I started looking at Instagram reels. It's okay. like these short form videos. And uh, a lot of the content that that algorithm is giving me is other artists. And a lot of these artists are having a lot of trouble because they feel completely at the whim of this algorithm. Because mm. it's like, I mean, it's like what you were saying before about like, you know, like if when you graduate art school, I have, I had such a huge benefit of being from New York. Mm. I'm from here. I've, yeah. You know, like I, 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 I didn't have to learn how to take the subway in my late twenties. Yeah. Sure. Like amongst other things, mm -hmm. amongst a million, million other things. But the biggest benefit of that is that, um, I didn't have to like, not, I, I have artists that I can have access to. Like it's hard to build a community and it's very hard to build a community, even in a city that's full of artists like New York. If you're not from a major city, it might be impossible for you to have an artist community that is face to face. Mm. It, it might be completely out of your purview of existence. Yeah. Like you, you might not be able to do that at all. So having your work be out there might just be completely at the whim of some internet algorithm. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's, Oh, that can, I feel like that can be almost as demoralizing as, you know, the stuff that we say about ourselves in our own heads, just like having this, having this thing dictate whether or not you get three eyes on your work or 300,000 eyes. Absolutely. It can just be such random chance. But I mean, I, I feel like what can help an artist push through that. I mean, like it ha having an, what can help an artist push through that is one, the tenacity of knowing that you're not here for likes. You're here because you want to make art and you have something deeper inside you that needs to come out through yeah. that medium. Uh huh. Um, and also the realization that like one, 
<laughs> this feels uh, this feels very condescending to say, and not everybody can do this, but you can get out of that situation. You can go to a major city and and find people around you, but mm-hmm. it is also possible to foster a community of artists around you virtually. It is possible. You yeah. are not just at the whim of some algorithm. Like you can actually make friends now and more than have ever, a real community. Which is not that. to say it's totally. easy. But yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's it's not easy, but. You know, sometimes you can find something in common with a group of artists and suddenly you have a community. Hmm. Suddenly it's there. I mean, it's like, I, I'm very lucky because like, I'm, I'm very much in the art world, but my art also dips into, uh, like furry territory. Hmm. I mean, it more than just, more than just dips into it. It's very much there. It's a very conscious thing. Hmm. And that community is full of artists who just know each other on the internet Yeah, and, then that community just grows and grows and grows. And it's like a huge, it's a, it's a huge community and it's full of people, not only artists supporting other artists, but non artists supporting artists. It's one of the things that inspired me to make my book. Actually, it's like that, that idea of access where I think one of the things we can get in our heads about as artists is like, Oh, like this is how much my art is worth. I know how much it's worth and I want to sell it at that price because I know how much it's worth. (laughs) But then you get into that feedback loop of like, I can't make anything below that price point or else I'm devaluing myself. Absolutely. But when you have a community of people who are like looking for what you're making and you find a way to give them access to it, it actually increases the value of your work because now you have something like a multiple that somebody can get and that shit sticks in your head. And when that person has enough money to buy a painting from you, they will. Yeah. Hey, absolutely. Totally. I uh, like. I feel like building community is like the most important part of being an artist. I think. I think that's very good advice. Uh, maybe we can end with just. I was going to say on a more optimistic note, but yeah. I think you already did. I think you took that kind of frustrating part of an artist's life and wrapped it up nicely. But I want to uh, end with a um, knowingly uh, silly question, which is. <laughs> Tell me about your big break. And I say it's funny because it's like, we all know there's really not for 90% of artists, 99, there's not really a big break, but what was the first um, situation that you found yourself in as an artist? Maybe it was being invited to a group show, or maybe it was a solo show, something that, or maybe it was a residency, maybe Mm. the Vermont uh, program, but something that you can recall about, when someone either invested themselves in you or that you'd feel like you just an opportunity came around and you seized it. Does anything come to mind? Cause those are often funny stories and sometimes people can glean little bits from that, not to totally. recreate it. Cause of course it's all so personal and we're on our own paths, but, but still, I, you know, I, I think, it's it's I like how you, you phrase it as the big break. Yeah, because I feel like that's like not that that's a myth, but mm. there's never one big break. There's a lot of small breaks that get bigger and bigger. Absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I mean, you you bring up the the Vermont Studio Center. So I went to Vermont Studio Center in November of 2017, and I graduated from Purchase uh, summer of 2015. Mm. So that's a two-year span of me working a lot of 
really terrible, disgusting, demeaning jobs. Yeah. And, and feeling like there is no way out of that and that like nobody is ever going to care about this thing that I was doing. And then when like when you apply to something like that, you never really expect you're going to get in. So I, I look back to that moment of like getting that email that I've been accepted into this residency mm-hmm. and feeling not only a sense of vindication that like, Oh, like my work matters and somebody is, you know, in touch with it and wanted me, wanted to give me this thing. Mm-hmm. It's also this, this, that feeling of like, okay, I am actually not only meant to work these shit jobs for the rest of my life. This thing that I wanted to do and that I'm in, that I went to school for and now I'm separated from that. Maybe this actually was what I was meant to do. Absolutely. Cause like you, you get so full of self doubt, but like yeah. that having something like that happen is like it, it, it can add years to your life as an artist. Mm. Totally. And I, I think about that because that, that's like my first one. I think about that and I think about something that happened to me very, very recently. And mm. it's funny. It's like I, I, I had an, an incredible solo show that, that went so well with Richard Heller Gallery in Los mm. Angeles and in February. And that it was so great. The reason you're not seeing any big paintings in here is that um, a bunch of them went out to L.A., mm-hmm. but a bunch of them also went out to Albuquerque just a month or so ago for a two person show that I did with another artist who's working with furry themes, Tommy Bruce. Hmm. Um, and no relation to your no, Bruce. No relation to my <laughs> Bruce. Actually, that was a very confusing writing the, the press release for the show. So uh, we actually also did a podcast while I was out there. So oh, for real? Uh, that might be out in the public eventually. So cool. Well, what was too. the podcast? Um, the podcast was about our relationship to anthropomorphism, like how we both arrived at this work, like, uh, how we feel like uh, our personal histories and our artistic paths led us to this. It, it was a very soul-bearing conversation. Awesome. Uh, it was really great. I think it's, uh, whether it's my podcast or others, I think the more artists we can get on tape chatting about literally whatever they want to talk about, totally. um, it's it's for the best. But I'm sorry, I interrupted. Yes. No, so the, uh, the second sort of thing was between Heller, Richard Heller, and this show in Albuquerque. So you it, felt... It, 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 it was right after this show in Albuquerque, because um, mm-hmm. I, I had gone out there, I installed the show, and we had our opening, which our opening went really well. I mean, at the Albuquerque Art Community, is pretty small, but everybody mm-hmm. showed out for us, and it was really great. Cool. Uh, and I left, I went to visit a friend in Portland, and I got back to New York. Uh, so, you know, on the calm down of all of that, um, I get a little notification on my Instagram story um of somebody reposting one of the the posts that I made about that show mm-hmm. and it's of of me and Tommy both in our our furry outfits looking at um my big huge painting the one that's rolled up behind you the big huge giant one uh-huh. um and it's like a 15 year old kid hmm. and they're reposting it on their story and it and just them saying this is the artist I want to be when I'm older oh wow and like that it sounds so f- cheesy and stupid and like pandering no, to so. say, but like that meant as much to me as getting that big show in Los Angeles. Cause no, it's that's, like, that's, that's very that's, cool. That's who is going to take that. That's the kind of person who doesn't need like a press release to get what I'm doing. Absolutely. They just see it. And intuitively that's just like, that inspires me. And that's like the most, 
rewarding thing as an artist. Like, selling a big painting is awesome because I can go get a fancy dinner and pay rent for a couple of months. That's yeah. great. Yeah. But having your work so directly affect somebody, especially somebody so young, it's mm-hmm. like... How, like, you can't get more incredible than that. It's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I totally agree. No, I'm really glad you shared that story. That stuff is, you were saying the, um, uh, the uh, Vermont acceptance added years to your art life like that. That's the sort of thing that really um, fills up the tank. Again, yeah. You know? So, so totally. And it's lovely because it also exists outside of so much of what we've been talking about today. It's just, um, yeah, no, it's a lovely story. <laughs> Mark, this has been great. Is there anything you just had these shows? Uh, if there's anything you want to plug, I guess now is the time. Yeah. If there's anything coming up, totally. otherwise, before we post, of course, I'll I'll get back in touch. Sure. Yeah. Um, um, let's see. The only thing I have coming up in the in the very near future is I have um, two paintings in Los Angeles with mm-hmm. Hashimoto Contemporary. Cool. They're doing a big summer group show called For the Love of Dog. Well, that fits uh, right. Hey, it, come on. <laughs> finally, the dog summer group show where that I'm in. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's it's a show that's benefiting a, an animal slash dog adoption cool. shelter out there. And I could not be more excited for that show. I've got two 16 by 22s on burlap going to that. Awesome. I'm so excited. I'm, I could be happier benefiting a, something that is for real dogs. And um, sorry, what was the date of that? Or Oh, it's it opens in like week and a half so like okay, mid-august okay. gotcha um and also i still have my book sold really well but mm. i still have a couple copies left so buy my book that's awesome <laughs> you can do that on your website maybe, yeah, yeah or... I, uh, there's a link in my bio for my on my instagram page and i'm very googleable so you can just very search googleable because i have the most unique last name in the world you but, do yes very unique this was so much fun this thank you for great. inviting me to your studio and uh we'll do a part two sometime in the future definitely this has, been fun. this has been great thanks a bunch and that was my conversation with mark sabravich uh, if you'd like to find out more about mark's work do check in the episode description you can also find him at his website marksbravich.com which is z-u-b-r-o-v-i-c-h Uh, You can find more of my work at isaacman.com with two A's and two N's. Uh, If you're interested in that book that Mark and I talked about, Stuff Bruce Likes to Sniff, you can actually still get your copy of it, uh, I think, directly on his Instagram and certainly directly through his website. So check that out. If you have any questions for me, please write to artmatterspodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do uh, share it on Instagram. I think that's a good way to bring in new listeners, and I'd really appreciate it. This next uh, episode, just look for that in two weeks' time. Uh, I've got some more great artists coming up, so uh, see you then. Thanks for listening.